Well, this morning we're going to be looking at yet another psalm. Uh, if you watched last week, I introduced a little bit of a new series that will continue until we're back together, however many weeks that may be. We're looking each week at one of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are a series of psalms that begin with Psalm 120, which we looked at last week. Uh, if you listened to that, that sermon last week, one of the things we said was that the Psalms of Ascent open with a certain discontentment. The psalmist talks about how much longer must I live amongst these people who see life and think about life so differently than him. People who are violent and lying and prone to war. And instead, what he longs for is peace, a kind of eternal peace and a place of worship. It's that discontentment that sets the psalmist off on this journey. At least that's how we imagine the Psalms of Ascent, being prayed by this traveler, this pilgrim, as they move towards one of those great worship events in Jerusalem. And so Psalm 120 opens with the question, how long must I be in this place of conflict? And what does it look like to begin that process, that journey, that path towards God? Psalm 121, which we're going to look at this morning, is the next step in that journey. Step two down that pathway towards Jerusalem as they were singing. And for us, that path towards holiness and towards God. Um, In the spiritual life of believers, this image of a path or a road or a pilgrimage has always been central to what it means to be growing and maturing into Christ, to being like Christ. I mean, Jesus himself would use the analogy of the way for those that were his disciples on this road with him. And so Psalm 121 takes us into what is really the second step of that road, this path that we've been on. Um, Often it's the case that whenever we think of ourselves on a trip, when we think of ourselves on a journey, we sometimes find ourselves in a position where we encounter things we hadn't anticipated. I don't know if you've ever set out on a project or a vacation and something uh, catastrophic has happened and you sort of find yourself asking, how in the world did I end up here? This wasn't what I had expected. It's not the path I expected to be on, but nonetheless, that journey takes us to places sometimes that didn't show up on the map or that we hadn't anticipated being taken to. Psalm 121 is the psalm that speaks to that situation. Once we're underway, leaving behind that place of conflict and looking ahead to the place of fulfillment and worship and peace, we find ourselves on that path suddenly encountering obstacles and difficulties that we hadn't anticipated or planned for. And Psalm 121 speaks to the uncertainty, the anxiety that's so often associated with the unknown portions of that trip that we're on. Um, What I want to do this morning is read uh, Psalm 121 to you. As I mentioned last week, the, the Psalms of Ascent are all fairly short. Psalms, so they're easy for you to be able to sort of reflect on as the week continues. And so hopefully this week, Psalm 121 will be that text for us. So Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 121. 
Now, that psalm opens with an image, once again, of a traveler. It's not hard to pick up the imagery from this. The person who is going out and coming in, the person who is looking up at the scenery, the hills that surround them as they're on this path. Um, if you've been in, again, imagining that this psalmist is somewhere in the, the central highlands of Israel, and as these psalms were often used in, in a trip towards Jerusalem itself, uh, that portion, the geography of that land, is characterized by the kind of hills that's described in these opening verses of the psalms. Is, uh, Jerusalem itself sets on a series of hills, and all around it you find from the coastal plains upward, uh, you find these rolling hills that gradually become rockier and steeper on up into the high points where Jerusalem itself sits. So anybody who was traveling to Jerusalem from any direction would have encountered hills and hilltops and mountains that would have had to have been traversed in order to make it to the holy city. This traveler, probably uh, in the way we read this psalm, headed towards Jerusalem, finds himself surrounded by these hills, probably as travelers often did, winding their way through various valleys and passes to try to avoid the elevation changes that come with those hills. Looking as they walk amongst those hills, looking up to the tops of them, the traveler imagines with those first verses, I lift my eyes up to the hills, from where does my help come? The psalm recognizes that there are certain uncertainties, certain ambiguities about any trip, any life, any direction that we take. There are all sorts of dangers that await this traveler, things that couldn't have been predicted. I mean, some of them are right here in the text, that your foot might slip. That may not sound like a real danger that we encounter, but if you imagine yourself traversing one of these narrow ledges or tight passes with rocky cliffs and ravines beneath you, then the single slip of a foot could have disastrous consequences. And remember, again, you're in the ancient world where there was not ambulance service or maybe a nearby hospital for you to find treatment. The simple slip of a foot could have really disastrous consequences. But there are other risks that the psalmist alludes to, such as the scorching sun that would beat down upon you, or the threat of evil, whether that's evil that comes from within, a kind of temptation you encounter on the road, or the kind of evil that might be external, something like a robber or a bandit who might be hiding in one of those valley passes or amongst the hilltops waiting to descend upon you. I mean, after all, Jesus, you might remember when he was using the same image of a traveler in the story of the Good Samaritan, posed exactly that risk that one man traveling on this road was robbed and beaten and left dead along the side of the road. It's something many would have considered a risk when they were making one of these long trips towards Jerusalem. Who knows what lies ahead? And that uncertainty is part of what the psalmist is struggling and trying to deal with. Where will I look to for help? Who will watch over me? How will I find protection when the sun is beating down on me and the terrain itself is risky and there's constantly a threat of robbers around every corner? But there's probably another reason that the psalmist opens up this psalm by this idea of looking to the hills and wondering where does help come from? Um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might know that this allusion to hilltops is sort of scattered all over the place. In the ancient world, the way most of these Canaanite religions worked is they would set up their shrines or their altars or their places of worship, their temples, on the tops of hills. Um, those hills were often considered sacred places or the places closest to heaven. And so it was common for people when they would go up to worship one of their gods to go up to a hilltop in order to make their sacrifices, to say their prayers or to worship. Uh, a good example of it is when the prophet Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. He does it on Mount Carmel where they have altars set up for Baal. In other words, he goes up to one of these high places, which is associated with their God. And it's there that he chooses to 
have this standoff between Yahweh and Baal for who is more powerful. That mountain was associated with Baal as one of the high places. So it was upon these hills that quite literally people would look to for help. The way these gods were worshipped in the ancient world is they were oftentimes a means to an end. Nobody imagined having personal relationships with the gods. Uh, They were worshipped because you needed something and the gods needed something, a kind of bartering system. You would make a sacrifice to ensure that the god was appeased so that he would send rain or protect your harvest or give you victory in battle or help you raise a healthy family and continue to have heirs. In other words, when you found yourself posed on life's journey with one of these risks or ambiguities, you would look and go up to one of the hills, and on that hill you would seek out the help of a god by making a sacrifice or offering worship there. Um, It's also common in these ancient stories about these Canaanite gods to have uh, ceremonies or procedures or incantations by which you captured the god's attention. In fact, you might remember when Elijah is confronting these prophets of Baal, and when they are not getting, even after cutting themselves and crying out and dancing in circles for hours, they're not getting a response from their god, Elijah sort of prods them by saying, maybe your god is asleep, maybe you haven't yelled loud enough to wake him up. Um, it's actually a common sort of refrain in these these Canaanite god stories that the gods would be sleeping or away and the worshiper would have to pique their interest or raise them up out of their slumber in order to get their attention for their request. And so here too, the psalmist alludes to it. That's why we think he's probably, when he's looking to the hills, he's thinking about all of these gods, these various gods of this land. Because he specifically says in verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. He's drawing out a comparison between the gods of these Canaanites and the gods of Israel in the way that they watch over this traveler. Um, It's a really interesting and important distinction between the ways that the gods of the Canaanite people worked and the ways Israel's God worked. The Canaanite gods were not looking out for people. They weren't there to protect or help those people. Instead, the kind of worship that evolved around them was a kind of local knowledge. The people of a particular land came to associate that particular hill with a particular god, and you could get particular results if you made a particular sacrifice. I mean, I'm using the word repetitively to point out the fact that it was a kind of system, a way in which you worship to get something done, and it had to be followed a certain way and in the right place in order to ensure the results. And so what came about was a kind of local insider knowledge for a person who was traveling through a land, a land that wasn't their home, then part of what they would be expected to do is to learn the way in which you appeased that particular land's gods, or if you needed help, the way you could worship the gods associated with that land. It's why oftentimes in antiquity, whenever a conqueror would come in and capture a city or a civilization, he would either declare that their god had been defeated and replaced by his god, or they would syncretize and set up shrines to that god to appease the local god now that they were in power. Um, that's what the, the psalmist is dealing with. As I'm passing through this unknown land, where will I look for help? Who is in control of this path and these hills and this place that I find myself in? Um, Now, we probably think to ourselves, we don't go about asking those kind of questions. Um, Most of you, when you're on vacation somewhere, you've probably never found the temptation to stop at a local tourist stand and ask, what are the gods I need to make sacrifice to to get through this state safely? Uh, That's not how we think about worship. But it's not exactly how they were thinking about it either. What they were thinking about were the practicalities of how you lived and got things done in a particular place. 
And that's something we spend a lot of time and a lot of our interest paying attention to. That kind of common sense advice or the way things are done around here happens wherever you go. Um, in other words, you could ask somebody and they could give you an explanation for what, uh, what you could do to be happy or have fun or find something interesting to do. Um, what is the common advice for how to be healthy or get healthier? How should I handle this particular threat or this trouble that I find myself in? How do I get ahead in this occupation or this career or within this certain marketplace? Um, how should I protect myself? What are the risks of living in this particular place versus that particular place? We think about those kind of practical questions. Where do I find help all the time? In fact, for many of us, the internet has become the endless source of those questions. I mean, if you look how most people are searching the internet, they're doing it to ask a question, expecting to get a piece of advice in return. Um, how many cups are in an ounce? Uh, how do I prune this particular kind of bush? What does it mean to deal with depression? Are there cures for the coronavirus? We go looking for help to our questions. And that's the same sort of thing that was happening in the ancient world, although oftentimes the difficult to answer questions were posed to the gods through a kind of worship and barter system. In other words, what you could say is when we ask questions about how to live well in this world, when we talk about the way things are done and common sense and how life has certain meanings and what is valuable, what we're really doing is looking at our own hilltops. We're looking at our ideals and our goals and our expectations and saying that holds the answer to the meaningful questions that I've been asking about life. Um, we, though, are people characterized by our faith in Christ who instead are called to look to a quite different place. We don't live, we don't walk this path looking to all of the same sources of advice and information the world does, but that can make us a strange kind of traveler. When everybody else knows exactly where to look and we keep looking to odd and other places, namely to scripture, to Christ, to the guidance of his spirit, it can fit in strangely with the way people are supposed to live and the common sense expectations of the place we find ourselves in. Um, Eugene Peterson in writing on Psalm 121 writes it this way. We save the Sunday gospel, so this faith that we have in Jesus, for the big crises of existence, for the mundane trivialities, the times when our foot slips on a loose stone, or the heat of the sun gets too much for us, or the influence of the moon gets us down. We use the everyday religion of the Reader's Digest reprint, advice from a friend, and the Ann Landers column, the huckstered wisdom of a talk show celebrity, in our day it might be online internet advice. We practice patent medicine religion. We know that God creates the universe and has accomplished our eternal salvation, but we can't believe that he condescends to watch the soap opera of our daily trials and tribulations. So we purchase our own remedies for that. To ask him to deal with trouble, what troubles us each day is like asking a famous surgeon to put iodine on a scratch. Um, I was struck by the fact of how true that is, that most of us have big mental categories for what it means to be a Christian, for salvation, for eternity, for heaven. Um, we value those things. We believe those things. We would give our lives for those things. But so often when it comes to just walking the path and dealing with the troubles of life, the slipping of the foot, the scorching of the sun, the risk around the corner... Our instinct is to go looking for what works in this world, imagining that what God is doing has very little to do with the commonness of our life. There's a tension in this psalm 
um, that I think is what makes it so powerful and interesting. God is a big idea, but what the psalm seems to be saying is that he's not so big as to be uninterested in these ambiguities and uncertainties along our path. In fact, what Psalm 121 does is it refuses to put faith and confidence and trust in the hilltops, in all of the common sense places that everyone else is looking. Jeremiah, uh, in, in his prophecies, puts it this way at one point. Truly, the hills are an illusion, even with all of their commotion. In other words, Jeremiah saw how much interest and energy and excitement these hilltop advice had, and he said, they're an illusion. They're not what God is actually doing. They're not the way you actually traverse this landscape or get somewhere. Just because they garner so much of the attention of the world doesn't make them right, doesn't make them true, and doesn't make them what God is ultimately doing. Instead, what this psalm does is it repeats a word over and over. Maybe you missed it the first time, but if you read it the second time, it's hard not to see. The word that comes up over and over again is the word keep. Behold, he who keeps Israel, verse 4. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. Um, That idea of keeping maybe seems a little abstract to us. In Hebrew, it has the same idea of guarding or watching out for or protecting. In other words, if I went on a walk with one of my kids on the shoulder of the road, you can be sure what I will be doing is keeping watch, guarding them, making sure I understand what traffic's coming and what risks are at the side of the road. My attention is on keeping them safe as we walk through what could be a dangerous situation. That's what the psalm means when it says that the Lord will keep you. Now, this is where that distinction between Canaanite culture and Israel's God is so distinctly different. The God of Israel doesn't just say, when you find yourself in desperate need, when you hit one of these uncertainties or risks, come up to the hilltop, tell me about it, I'll intervene and deal with it. Instead, what what the psalmist says is that Israel's God is not up on some hilltop by which you access him, but he is already, before you've recognized the danger or faced it, He's already watching you, keeping you, guarding you, walking this path with you. That his attention does not have to be grabbed by sacrifice or woken up from slumber, but his attention has been on you from the first step of this journey and will be in all of your going out and coming in in that great last line from this time forth and forevermore. God has his attention and his interest and his protection on every moment and every difficulty of this path that you walk through life. Now, there's an image that he gives for this experience of being watched, being kept. It's really one of the only analogies. Everything else about this psalm is actually quite literal, but the analogy that we get is that this keeping, verse 5, the Lord is your keeper, and the description of it is, the Lord is your shade. In other words, the image is that as God is watching out for you, the experience of being guarded is to find yourself in the shade of God's presence and his attention. Now, when we think about what we need from God on this journey, we have a long list of things we would like to have. Uh, Some safety and protection. We'd like to make sure we're victorious if there's any uh, conflict that arises. We want certainty we're going to reach our destination. We'd like a little extra change in our pocket for uh, all the knickknacks and uh, tourist traps that we encounter along the way. We want the path that we're on to be smooth and easy. And every time we hit an uncertainty, we go to God with one of the requests. Make it easier. Give us what we need. Equip us with the stuff. The 
doesn't ridicule that. It's fine. And oftentimes, God does choose through miracles, through healing and protection and providence to give us exactly those needs. But it's not ultimately what it means to have God as our protector. What it really means, the greatest possession we have in this God who walks with us, is that we find peace and relaxation and enjoyment in the shade of his protection. Um, I think of that great Psalm 23 we looked at a few weeks ago, that when we find ourselves in the shadow of death's valley, it's that same place which God turns into for us calm, still waters and a green meadow in which we lie down and relax. What God's keeping looks like is that we might find a sense of peace and a sense of contentment and a sense of stillness as we pass through this land. While the world clamors for answers and advice and any means by which they can control the situation, we walk calmly through this valley, trusting that one is watching us and keeping us. Um, In Israel, if you go there, uh, if you've been there before, this idea of scorching sun may not sound like a lot, but uh, if you've experienced it in Israel, it can be significant. If this psalm is being written, maybe uh, in one of those rocky ravines heading up towards Jerusalem, it could be near the the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea uh, in the summertime often will reach temperatures of 120 degrees. It's not uncommon for the rest of Israel to experience temperatures over 100 degrees. And it's the kind of heat where if you're in the sun, you will feel it. It does not take long to burn and to feel the heat of the sun bearing down on you. But unlike here, where the humidity can make even the shade unbearable to be in, in Israel, if you can manage to find a scrap of shade somewhere, oftentimes difficult to find in that rocky wilderness, but in one of these ravines beneath some form of vegetation, a tree, that shade makes all the difference. That dry heat oftentimes will sort of leave you once in the shade, feeling and recognizing the coolness of a breeze and actually make what could be an unbearable day uh, a kind of nice and pleasant day. You'll experience that if you go to Israel. That's what the psalmist is sort of describing, that instead of this sun scorching down upon me, that once I come to recognize that you are walking with me and protecting me and looking out for me before I even know to ask, then this whole journey takes on a kind of ease, a kind of shade, a kind of coolness and refreshness, even as I find myself in the midst of that heat. And maybe this is, in many ways, the great reversal of this image. I don't think I'm reading too much into this psalm to suggest that, you know, all of those hilltops that people are clamoring to the top of, because of their height, they also cast a shade into the valley beneath them. I can't help but wonder if that's the shade that this psalmist finds themselves physically and literally walking in and connecting that image to being the image of God's protection, that as they walk in that valley, the valley of death's shadow, while everyone else clamors for the top of the hill, they come to realize that it's actually this place in the shade of that hill in which they discover God walking and protecting and guiding them. For us, it's an image of another great reversal. That though the way we live, the way we think about this path can be seen by many as foolish, this is Paul's great line, to the wise it seems like foolishness, that it's actually in this foolishness and the contentment of it, trusting, trusting that God is working all things for good, trusting that his attention is always on us, even when we don't feel it, trusting that he guides and keeps and protects us through all difficulties, that it's in what for many would be considered the dark place, the place beneath the hilltop with all the answers, that we actually find God most at work in the shade, giving us rest. 
Um, the truth is, the last few weeks have been pretty busy for me. Um, some, I know, have been able to enjoy extra time at home and extra time with family, but the reality is these uh, video sermons actually take more work than an actual sermon, and uh, thankfully, I'm not complaining about it, but my freelance work has been busier than ever, and uh, we've been homeschooling Will since school has been let out, and I found myself recently feeling just tired of everything that's going on. I was reading this psalm, well, and then there's obviously on top of all of it, the decision fatigue of constantly trying to plan, but only having a few days to plan for it, the constant risks that we live under. I was reading Psalm 121 this week, and I felt in myself a deep sense to take advantage of what it offers. That what Psalm 121 tells us is not that all of those complexities will be done away with. That we'll wake up tomorrow and everything will be a simple, safe, and gradual road towards something better. Um, We still pass through the valleys. We still risk stumbling. We still risk being robbed. But what Psalm 121 gives us is a sense of not having to worry as much about it. That in the midst of all of those difficulties, because we know he looks out for us, we need not carry that burden ourselves. So I might encourage you to see if you could find a patch of shade. (laughs) Maybe it's outside in a hammock. Maybe it's on a porch. Maybe it's just sitting there in your couch with your eyes closed. But as we reflect on Psalm 121, what I want to do is take a moment to calm myself, to take a little Sabbath, a little break from all of the work that's in front of me, and to remind myself that what matters more than anything else right now is that we have a God who keeps us, who watches us, who guards us and protects us. And though it doesn't always mean that nothing bad will come, it means that ultimately, for now and forevermore, We can be assured that whatever does come, it will be for good, because he is the one who is guiding every step that we take on this journey. If the Psalms of Ascent are an analogy for what it means to grow into maturity and into life, and if that process begins with the discontentment we looked at last week, a longing for something better, a place of peace, then Psalm 121 reminds us that the ultimate realization of that peace is not some future destination, but it's every step of this journey as we realize more deeply that God is with us as we go. Let's close in prayer and do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would teach us to rest in your presence. And as we find ourselves in a time where this path is uncertain for many, that God, we would find that there is shade in your protection, shade by which we can find peace and rest and protection. God, we pray you would teach us not to clamor for the tops of hills and all the advice that everyone's giving us. To God, not be oppressed or beaten down by the the theories and the controversies, the advice, the opinions, the expectations, the decisions, so much that is weighing in on us. But that ultimately we would be people that by your presence sense that you are with us, guiding us, walking with us, protecting us, keeping us, that we might be people who are characterized by a deep sense of contentment, that it would speak to the world around us, that our hope is not in what we can fix or create or manufacture, but that our ultimate hope for now and forevermore, that hope is in you. That God, you sent your son to die for us long before we asked for it, long before we recognized our own need, that for generations you've been pouring out grace and mercy, and kindness where it wasn't earned or deserved. And we see it, God, and realize that you are with us. 
that you have taken on flesh, that you have walked in this same sinful world with all of its challenges and struggles and pains and sorrows, and that even now you walk with us, not as a distant God that we awaken, but as a God who is already awake, watching, guiding, protecting. So we worship you this morning. We do it as a practice of Sabbath, of closing off our minds and our anxieties from the cares of this world and instead trusting and loading them onto your shoulders and worshiping you for your kindness and bearing them for us. That in you, we have hope above all else. So we worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.